Welcome to the next installment of Faith and the Outdoors podcast, which you're about to listen to or watch or both. It was actually recorded earlier today, and I decided I'm going to launch this as a bonus episode because, as I mentioned in the last episode, my next intended episode is going to have a Catholic priest sitting right here next to me, and he is going to be here tomorrow to record the episode that's going to air this coming Tuesday. So my intention is normally to air episodes on Tuesdays, but this bonus episode is coming out on a Thursday. The reason why I'm launching it is I have been getting so many questions that um, I need to do some extra episodes to answer them. So this one is going to be purely faith-related. I won't be able to get into the outdoor stuff because, one, I didn't get any outdoors-related questions, and two... I have so many faith-related comments and questions that I need to address them. So without further ado, I'm going to share with you what I recorded earlier today and decided to go ahead and launch this episode as a bonus before the upcoming Tuesday normal episode launch. So enjoy. So after I aired the last podcast, this person wrote a very lengthy comment, and I'm going to make this request yet again. Please, if you have any questions, email me. I think trying to post a bunch of things underneath a video like on YouTube, it's not a productive way to unravel the truth or discuss it. I'm going to read a little bit of this person threw so much at us, and it's all over the place that I'm going to just kind of work my way through the comment and address some of it. But... Let me start by, by saying everything comes down to a question of authority. Let me say that again. Everything, when it comes to these religious topics and questions, it comes down to authority. Who has the authority to say what book should be in the Bible? Who has the authority to say how this book should be interpreted? What's this message supposed to be? Because as I mentioned in the last episode, we could have everybody read the same passage and come up with a different interpretation. Yet Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. That means one of those has to be true. They can't all be true if they are conflicting, the interpretations. And so um, who can say, who has the authority? Who, who is correct? And I thought I went to, well, actually, I, I did go to great length to try to spell that out. And as I was reading through this person's comment, they say at the end that they only got 25 minutes in and had to shut it off. Well, guess what? You're not going to get all of the facts and details if you don't even stay for the whole message. (laughs) So if you really want to find the truth, hang in there. So what I'm sharing in this podcast is the truth revealed in Scripture and by Jesus, and I have been exposing falsities that were made up by man and misdirect people. And the first one that I want to just re you know remind everybody of is that the Bible makes no claim to have the fullness of truth. The Bible makes no claim that it is the authority on truth. If you think the Bible is the authority on truth, show me the passage that says The Bible is the sole authority or the supreme truth. Again, what is revealed in Scripture is true, but the Bible alone 
does not reveal all of God's truth. I gave the example in the last episode. I guess the person didn't hang around long enough to listen to it. The Bible doesn't tell us when a person becomes a person. So when abortion became popularized in our culture, we couldn't turn to the Bible alone to get God's response to whether or not this was okay. What we need to be able to determine is when, at what moment in time, does a person actually become a person? Because at that point in time, it is against God's law to kill that person. And again, the Bible doesn't claim to have all the truth, nor does it say it anywhere. The Bible doesn't tell us things like, when does a person become a person? It was the Pope who has the keys of authority that Jesus assigned, as we see in Matthew 16, 13 through 19, in fulfillment of the prophecy of the Pope in Isaiah 22, 20 to 24. This person has the keys of authority to make a determination or a proclamation on a truth from God that cannot be found in Scripture alone. So that's the starting point. Anybody who thinks the Bible alone is the sole authority, that word authority, you have been deceived by a teaching that was made up in the 16th century to justify breaking away from the authority of Christ in his church. I will repeat, if you believe the Bible alone is the sole authority, then you have accepted a man-made lie that was promulgated in the 16th century by a disgruntled priest who left the Catholic Church and began to change theological teachings. And I challenge anybody who has believed that the Bible alone is a sole authority or has all the truth, anybody that has believed that, first, research it extensively, and you'll find that there's no passage in the Bible that indicates that. But secondly, start to read what the Christians wrote throughout the first five centuries of Christianity. Even go for the first 1,000 years. Read what Christians wrote for 1,000 years, and here is what you're going to find. First of all, you will not find anyone say that the Bible alone is the supreme authority on doctrine and practice or anything like that. You won't find it because it was never a teaching from Jesus Christ. Additionally, you will find the constant expression of the structure and teachings that are still found in the Catholic Church because it is the Catholic Church that has existed all this time. I challenge you to go read the Church Fathers for the first 500 years and look for the ideas of authority, who has authority, Is it the Bible alone, or is it the bishops in union with the Pope that has the authority of Christ? And when you read what the followers of Jesus believed and taught for the first 500 years of Christianity, and you come to realize that they are expressing the Catholic faith, I invite you again to come home to Jesus' church, the fullness of truth. So, let me say that clearly before anybody clicks off, well, maybe they already have, Um, Now I'm going to address some of this person's questions. Actually, before I do, I want to give you one more solid piece of information to help you in your journey. If you are not a Catholic right now and you are still listening, first of all, thank you. Uh, Secondly, we want Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's 
who I'm trying to lead people to, not because of me, but because it's what God has charged me to do as a Catholic. I was baptized Catholic, and my charge from God is to spread the truth of his church. And so that is what I'm trying to do here. Now, I want to point out something that most Christians do not know and is another key reason why they have not been able to find the fullness of truth when they read the Bible alone. The Bible is called the Old Testament and New Testament, and many Christians don't even know what is meant by the word testament. I go into this in greater detail in my latest book, Become a Better Archer and Use It to Avoid Sinning. Again, strongly recommend it for you Christians who are not Catholic or you lapsed Catholics or fallen away Catholics or, you know, just not practicing. Read the book, please. Anyway, as I say in there, the word testament actually means covenant. So what the Bible is telling us is the covenant relationships that God established with humanity to save us from sin and hell. So God's plan for salvation involves the way he is establishing a covenant relationship with us. Do you know what the covenant relationship is and how it is formed? If you don't, I want to point you to the only place where Jesus tells us what the new covenant is. And it takes place at the Last Supper. You could read Luke's account of the Last Supper. You could read 1 Corinthians 11. Um, I think it's 20, verse 23 through about 28, somewhere around there. St. Paul also tells us very clearly the new covenant is formed in what the Catholic Church calls the Eucharist, where Jesus takes the bread, commands them to eat it in memory of him. He then takes the cup. He says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. My friends, the entire Bible reaches its climax in those words. He says, take it and drink it for the forgiveness of your sins. This is how Jesus Christ established the covenant relationship with his family, his followers, his church. And this is how we become one with God. And I want to turn in the Bible to John chapter 6 to help make this message clear. Now, I have it memorized, but I'm going to read it anyway, just to make sure I don't leave a word out. This is from John chapter 6, and I'm going to start at verse 51. Jesus is talking about the bread of life. So in this situation, the people were waiting for a Moses figure who would feed them bread from heaven like Moses did in the Old Testament. In fact, Moses said to look for one like him, a prophet like him. And so the people in the Old Testament were waiting for this figure. Jesus just fed the 5,000. And then they're like, man, this might be the guy who's, to, who's going to feed us like Moses did. So they come and ask him, are you the one we're supposed to look for? Give us a sign. Moses gave us a sign. He, Moses fed us from bread from, with bread from heaven. And Jesus is addressing that. Okay. So starting at verse 51, he says, I, well, first of all, he says, Moses did not feed you that bread. My father did, okay, from heaven. So now Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Now they knew he meant this literally, and they also the word he uses for eat means to chomp down on and gnaw on, like physically. 
And we know that they took him literally because of the response. It says, The Jews quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. The reason is because it's through the eating and drinking of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ that our sins are washed away and we are one with God for salvation, which is what he says at the Last Supper. Now, let me ask you a question, my friends. If this is true, which it is, but... For a moment, put aside your reservations. If this is true, who does not want you to receive the body and blood of Jesus into your body? The answer is Satan. Do not think that you cannot be tricked because you are a follower of Jesus. Okay, If you're a follower of Jesus and you do not think that you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, then you have already been misled. Let's look at the words of Jesus. And in fact, you know what? I'm just going to give you a homework assignment. I beg you to pray to Jesus with this passage. Sit down with your Bible. Whatever translation it is, it doesn't matter because it's going to recount it the way I just worded it there because those are the words that come from Scripture. Jesus is going to say to you, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Because that's his plan for establishing the New Testament, the new covenant in our relationship with him. Now, in order to be prepared to receive the body of Jesus into your body, You must first be baptized to have all sin washed away so that your soul is prepared. That's why the Catholic Church has always taught and practiced baptism must come first. And in fact, Jesus requires baptism for this reason, because we need it to fully enter into the new covenant through his flesh and blood. So what does he say in Mark 16, 16? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved because baptism washes away all sin and it gives us the opportunity to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it also prepares us to enter fully into the new covenant through receiving. The flesh refers to our fallen human nature that does not have faith. Okay, so he's basically saying, he's basically saying you need to have faith in this teaching Your doubts and unbelief is of no avail. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would believe and the ones who would betray him. Excuse me, the one who would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me 
unless it is granted him by my father. Listen to verse 66. So this is John 666, chapter 6, verse 66. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. My friends, followers of Jesus turned away over this teaching. And that's why I beg you to not be one. And the only way that you will not be one of them is through prayer and God's grace. Sit with this gospel passage and prayerfully read it again and again and say, Jesus, please speak to me what you want to say to me. Now, this teaching is the starting point of all of Christianity because this is the revelation of how the new covenant is fulfilled. It is fulfilled in the body and blood of Jesus, given on the cross for us, but then given to us in his body and blood in the Eucharist. This is how we enter into the New Testament, the new covenant. So now, if you don't read the scriptures in the context of the covenant relationships that God established, you will miss the truths that are conveyed in many other areas. This comes back to the question of authority. Who has the authority to interpret these passages? It's not you and me. It is the one given the keys of authority from Jesus, which I articulated extensively in the last podcast. Please go back and listen again as I referenced the prophecy in Isaiah and then the fulfillment in Matthew. This person has the keys, and if you read all of the centuries of the church, you will see that this person has led the church from Peter until now. We actually have a line of succession from Peter till now, of the leaders of Jesus' church who have been given the keys of authority. So now we need to look at everything through the lens of the covenant, the testament, and the authority Jesus established on earth. With that being said, let me read some of this comment from this person. It says, Sean, I appreciate your channel and overall goal but have some doctrinal concerns. I want to be respectful in the way that I write this and hope that you can have an open mind here what is being said. I have a hard time with anyone praying to anyone except God. This includes Mary. To do so elevates that person to the level of God, and there is no biblical evidence that teaches this. Well, first of all, Where does it say in the Bible that praying to a saint elevates them to the level of God? In fact, the Bible contradicts that because the Bible is the truth. The Bible commands us to pray for one another. Who are the saints? They are the baptized believers in Jesus. So those of you who are watching this and listening right now, you're a baptized believer. You are a saint in the kingdom of God, the church militant on earth. Now, I am called to have you pray for me, and I am called to pray for you. That does not elevate you or me to the level of God. So this is the command of God. And when we die, 
We are not separated from each other because when we are in Christ, we remain in Christ. Those who are in heaven are in Christ. They remain part of our body, the body of Christ. And so if I ask a saint to pray for me, just as I ask you, the listener, to pray for me, it's not elevating them to the level of God. It is calling on them as my brother or sister in Christ to pray for me. And as I said before, it says in Scripture, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful indeed. Who is more righteous as a person than those who have been perfected by God and are in heaven with God? No one on earth is perfected. The people in heaven are perfected, so their prayers are more powerful than ours. Let me repeat that. Their prayers are more powerful than ours, where they are righteous, fully perfected before God. Who would not want us to call on those who have been perfected to pray for us? Who? It would be the devil. The devil does not want us to ask those who are perfected by God, to pray for us. So, let me come full circle. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you and I are elevated to godliness, to Godheadness, by asking for prayer. In fact, the scriptures command us to ask one another for prayer and to pray for one another. So, where is this idea coming from? It is a distortion of a truth. Okay, and that's what the devil does. Think back to Adam and Eve. The rule God gave Adam and Eve was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when Satan appeared, he took that truth and he twisted it. Did God really tell you not to eat of any of the trees in the garden? Oh, no. He said to we could eat of any of them, just not this tree. Oh, so now he's trying to get them to doubt God. Oh, he only told you that because he doesn't want you to be like God to know the difference between good and evil. And what happened? Eve saw that it was good. So the devil tricks us by twisting a truth and making it sound good. My friends who have believed in the Bible alone, doesn't it sound good to think that if we pray to someone in heaven, that we're elevating them to God? Because then that means I don't have to change. I don't have to believe that. That means I'm right, you're wrong. That makes me feel good. Do you see that? That's where the deception lies. So in no way are we elevating someone to Godheadness by asking for their prayers. It's the continuation of what we do here on earth. We believe those who are in Christ are still members of our family. They're not dead. They're alive, and they're perfected, and their prayers are powerful, and we believe it's advantageous to ask for their prayers. Now, if the prayer is granted, it is by the grace of God. In the last podcast, I pointed to the wedding feast of Cana, how Mary interceded for the married couple to Jesus, and he refers to her in this way, woman, what have you to do with me? Now, I want to just pause here because... Well, I'm going to just finish what I was saying. That example shows us how Mary interceded for the couple and Jesus granted it because of her intercession. But this person had a special problem with Mary here. And somewhere in the comment, I'm, I'm just going to tell you because I'm not going to sift through it. He says, 
Jesus refers to Mary as woman when he's on the cross. And this person gives the impression that that belittles her in a sense, like it puts her down a notch. That is incorrect. For Jesus to refer to Mary as woman, he does so, first of all, with absolute respect because the commandment is to honor father and mother. So when Jesus speaks to Mary at any time, he needs to do it respectfully. Otherwise, it would be a sin against honoring his mother. And what the scriptures tell us in Genesis 3.15, I believe it is, it says that the woman and her seed would crush the head of Satan. For Jesus to refer to Mary as woman, he is pointing to all of us that this is the woman and her seed that would crush the head of Satan. Now, Jesus is the one who paid the price for us on the cross, but what did the prophet Simeon say in the temple when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to dedicate him after he was born? He said, A sword of sorrow will pierce your heart so that the hearts of many may be revealed. You can go and read that scripture passage yourself. Pray with that scripture passage. Lord, what are you revealing to us through this scripture passage? God is revealing to us that Mary would share in the suffering of Jesus as part of this whole thing. When Mary stood at the foot of the cross, she was gutted. That sword of sorrow was piercing her heart as she watched her only son die for us. And he said to her, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Again, referring to her as the woman and her seed, there is a connection there. So Jesus paid the price. Jesus could not have paid the price had Mary not given her yes to accepting Jesus and all the suffering that would come along with it. So we're not elevating Mary to godliness, to godheadness. We're not elevating Mary on the level of Jesus, but Mary participated in the suffering, in the whole God's plan, whole of God's plan for our salvation. Like it or not, that is the truth that we see in the Bible. A sword of sorrow would pierce your heart so that the hearts of many would be revealed. My friends, would those hearts, the thoughts of those hearts been revealed had Mary not accepted this and then the sword of sorrow pierced her heart? Something to take to prayer. I will continue. So again, we are not elevating Mary to the level of God. We are honoring Mary in imitation of Jesus. Jesus honored Mary unto death and into heaven, okay? And we are called to follow Jesus' example of honoring Mary. That is the commandment to honor father and mother. So the person goes on to write, um, do so, to do so elevates the person to love of God, and there is no biblical evidence that teaches this. Where do you see the saints intercede for us? And I've already addressed that. We are the saints. We intercede for each other now and Continues, and I did mention this in the last episode. In the book of Revelation, the, the elders in heaven present the prayers of the saints, the people on earth, to God, and it's in the form of incense coming from the bowl that they have 
as they're worshiping God. So we see the elders in heaven presenting our prayers to God. That is an expression of us, of them interceding for us. They are presenting our prayers. So give me, I'll give you an example. I mentioned St. Anthony that I've prayed through his intercession to find lost things. And he has answered that hundreds and thousands of times in my life. So when I go to St. Anthony, I'm basically saying, St. Anthony, please pray with me to God for this intention. And he turns and prays to God our Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit for this intention. If the intention is granted, it's just like Mary at the wedding feast. It's granted through the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. But that person interceded for me to request this of God's power. Again, it's not the person who is granting the request. It's God who's granting the request. The person helped with their intercession. So now the next sentence says, Jesus is the only one who intercedes for us. Again, what does the devil do? He takes a truth and he twists it. Let me finish reading this. It says, Jesus is the only one who intercedes for us. The Bible is the truth and the only truth. There is no adding to it. Anytime, okay, well, the person goes on. And before I get distracted from this point, I want to say this. It says, Jesus is the only, inter- the only one who intercedes for us. Now, the Bible says, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Okay, Jesus is literally the only mediator between God and man. However, we are called to intercede for one another, not just now, but later. So I've already discussed, I ask you for prayer, you ask me for prayer. We intercede in prayer for one another. The people in heaven are perfected. We ask them to intercede for us before the Father with that prayer intention. Jesus is the one who mediates that between us and the Father. Jesus is the only mediator we are called to intercede. So you see, uh, the devil can use little manipulations of words to totally throw us off track. So he goes on to say that the Bible never changes. It is the absolute truth. This is why the views held by the Catholic Church often change, but the truth in God's word never changes. Well, first of all, this person has been miseducated. The truths that are proclaimed by the Catholic Church, the dogmatic, theological, and moral teachings of the Church do not change. They cannot change because they are absolute revealed truths from God. An example of this is that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible alone doesn't even make it really clear how that's possible or what that means. It's actually the teachings of the Catholic Church that have define that for us. And many Christians who read the Bible have accepted the Catholic Church's teachings on the Trinity, and they just impose that understanding when they read the Bible, because the Bible isn't real clear on how that all that takes place. The Bible also isn't real clear on what does it mean for Jesus to be human now. He was God from all eternity, the only begotten Son of God. Um, so when Jesus became man, did he give up his divinity? Was he actually divine in the, in the appearance of a human? What, what exactly happened? The Bible doesn't actually explain that. It was the bishops led by the Holy Spirit in the Catholic Church who actually defined what that means for Jesus to become man. 
So the Catholic Church, just so you know, Jesus is not half God, half man, which I've heard Protestants say that. That's incorrect. That's false. It's not true. Jesus is both fully God and fully man simultaneously. And the church had to develop language to explain and define this because it didn't exist, not even in the Bible. They call it the hypostatic union. Jesus united humanity to his divinity completely, 100% through and through. Jesus is both fully God, fully man. You won't find that in the Bible because the Bible alone doesn't reveal it. And the Catholic Church has always held this and believed and taught this. So when this person said that the Catholic Church's teachings change, this person is incorrect. The things that do change in the Catholic Church are what's called religious practices. A religious practice is a way we act on a revealed truth. Let me give you an example. I just mentioned that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Catholics bless themselves with the sign of the cross. If you're watching me on video, I'm about to do it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, I'm a Roman Catholic, so when I do that, and I talked about this in an earlier episode, we bless ourselves in the name of the Father, Son, and we start with the left shoulder for the crossbar, and then we end on the right shoulder. Now, the Eastern Catholic Church, which is another branch of the Catholic Church, we believe all of the same things. Some of their religious practices developed differently over the centuries. They bless themselves in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they start with the right shoulder and end on the left. It doesn't matter which way you do it because it's only a religious practice to call to mind the Blessed Trinity. So the Trinity that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a revealed truth from God that is an absolute truth that will never change. The way we make the sign of the cross can change today, could change tomorrow. In fact, if, if the church wanted to, they could change and say, in the name of the Holy Spirit and in the name of the Son and in the Father. And they could do the whole thing in reverse. It doesn't matter because we're tracing the cross of Jesus on our body and we're calling to mind every person in the Blessed Trinity. So the things that change in the Catholic Church are religious practices. And another example would be the way we pray at Mass. The fact that we need to go to church every week on Sunday or Saturday evening is an absolute truth. The command from God is to keep holy the Lord's day. And we view that as the day of the resurrection. So in fact, I'm going to just tangent here and include this. Those of you who go to church on Sunday, you do so because the Catholic Church started that tradition after the resurrection. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was on Saturday. From sundown on Friday evening to sundown on Saturday evening. That was the Sabbath. But since Jesus rose from the dead, and the scriptures say he was raised for our justification. So the fulfillment of our salvation would be able to be implemented after the resurrection. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised for our justification. That is why we go to church on Sunday. It is to commemorate and call to mind the great thing that Jesus did in raising from the dead, he was raised for our justification. So folks, we can only be justified because of the resurrection. It is the resurrection that is the eighth day. It is a new day. It is a new beginning in God's new testament, his new covenant, his new kingdom. So that is a tradition with a capital T that was started by the apostles and will never change. We go to mass 
every week, either starting sundown on Saturday evening or by sundown on Sunday. And we do that because it's a truth that we have implemented from the beginning of Christianity. But the way that we say Mass is a religious practice, which means it can change and it has changed. Okay, so the structure of the Mass has been fairly the same throughout Christianity. There's early documentation of how it was done, and it's basically the same. There's been slight modifications over time. And at one point in time, you know, since Latin was the uh, designated language of the church, they decided to pray the whole Mass in Latin. It wasn't always that way. And in fact, we still maintain some of the Greek the Kyrie, the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, that we say at the beginning of Mass, asking for God's forgiveness before we hear the sacred word read to us, proclaimed to us from the, from the ambo, we ask for God's mercy to prepare for that. And we say that when we, when we say Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, that is Greek. That's not even Latin. So um, my point, though, is the way that we say Mass has changed over time. And in fact, we moved to the vernacular again, which is, you know, whatever language you speak. I speak English, and I live in the United States, so Mass, I go to Mass. I do it in my language so that I can understand it, and um, that was a religious practice that was modified. The fact that we still go to church on Sunday never changed. So anyway, this person is, is incorrectly educated. Let me go on. It says, the church is not the pillar of truth. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the pillar of truth. My friend, you do not know your Bible well enough. Where does the Bible say that Jesus is the pillar and foundation of, of truth? I'm going to turn to 1 Timothy 3.15, and I encourage anyone who's listening, get your Bible out and turn to 1 Timothy 3.15 and read it with me. What does the Bible say in 1 Timothy 3.15? But if I should be delayed... You should know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Right there. The church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So what is the church? The church is the body of believers who are guided by the Holy Spirit, and in particularly the ones given the keys of the kingdom to bind on loose and, and in heaven, which is extremely powerful, and I've already talked about that is the Pope and his successors and the College of Bishops who are in union with the Pope. We call that the magisterium. Again, this person, a sincere Christian, has been misled. See, these are nice-sounding things. Like, if you don't want to think that the Catholic Church is Jesus' Church, you're, you don't want to hear that. It's not going to feel good to realize I am wrong and I have to change. So what does feel good? That, that they're wrong and I'm right. So we're going to just dismiss things that the Bible says when it's convenient, and we're going to twist things that sound reasonably good but are not actually true. So the person goes on to say, the term Christian means follower of Christ, imitator of Christ, little Christ. If you simply model your life around Christ, you're, you won't go wrong. Now let me just say this. The person said, there's no example of Jesus praying to saints. Well, what is a saint? Saint is one who, we could also say someone who's died, 
someone who died in God's favor and is not in hell. Okay, let's look at that for a minute. Did Jesus ever speak to or converse with anyone who died in God's favor? Now, what is the word prayer? The word prayer refers to conversing with someone who died in God's favor, someone in heaven or God himself, because Jesus Christ himself did just that. If you read the the account of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain in front of witnesses, Peter, James, and John, he is speaking with people who died in God's favor, Moses and Elijah. They are people in God's favor who are beyond this earth. Jesus is conversing with them about what he is about to undergo in his passion death. That is a, a very significant thing. Now, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, but they first are individual real people in in a real situation that literally took place. So here is Jesus. And again, what is prayer? It's conversing with people who have passed through this life and are now in God's favor. That is one form of prayer. So there's different forms. And this is another thing, and I mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. So prayer, there are, even if you read the catechism of the Catholic Church, it talks about prayer. There's different types of prayer. There's prayers of intercession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of, um, by the way, prayers of intercession is interceding for someone else, like we're called to do. There's also prayer of worship. And the catechism, which is the teaching, the summary of the teachings of the Catholic Church, states very clearly that worship is due to God alone. So when we pray to a saint, we're not praying, it's not a prayer of worship. It's a prayer of intercession. We are asking for their intercession. So it's this, again, if I say to you, let's say the person listening right now, let's say your name is Tim. Tim, will you pray for me? I'm not worshiping Tim. I'm asking for Tim's intercession. If I would say, Tim, I worship you as my God. You are my all in all. I give you my life. That is wrong. And if a, if a Catholic ever was to say to a saint, I worship you and I give you my life, that is the sin of idolatry. That is making someone or something equal to God. And that is a very serious sin. But guys, that's not at all what we're doing. We're asking for intercession, which is a type of prayer. And what is prayer? It is a way of conversing with either God in heaven or someone who is in God's favor. It's a way of saying to you, I was talking to someone in heaven. Like, if I'm talking to you, the way we talk about it, the way we articulate it on earth is, I was talking to Tim about Jesus and God, and I asked him to pray for me. Well, the way that we communicate if someone is beyond this life and is in favor with God, we call that prayer. I prayed through the intercession of St. Anthony, which means I asked St. Anthony to intercede for me to gain God's favor. Again, all worship to God alone. So these are truths that the Catholic Church has always held. And what we see in this person's comment is, a good intention, this person has good intentions, and they even started off saying that they didn't want to, you know, come across the wrong way. Uh, But they're really actually misled. And so if you're reading the Bible and you think that you can interpret it correctly on your own, you've already been misled. 
We cannot interpret the Bible all on our own and find the fullness of truth. We need to defer in obedience to the authority figures that Jesus Christ has established over us. And I will remind you, Jesus was on earth for 30 years before his public ministry. He did not write a single word of the New Testament. If Jesus' plan was to give us the Bible alone to read, to follow him, he would have done that and said to you and me, guys, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. Read these words and you'll be able to figure it all out and you'll know exactly what to do. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus picked 12 specific men, chose one of them in Matthew chapter 16, as we see in verses 13 through 19, and he gave that person the keys of authority in his kingdom. That person holds the authority of Christ to speak on Jesus' behalf in Jesus' absence. Okay, so he says, I guess here is my argument, words of advice, whatever you want to call it. Use the Bible as your guide. Leave all other man-made rituals, traditions, and additions behind. Well, my friend, where does the Bible say to go to church on Sunday? If you leave that tradition of the church behind, what are you going to do? That is what Christians have done since the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the resurrection and ascension. When the church started, the church began its worship on Sunday. And in fact, the early church, they even some of them still went to the Jewish synagogue on Saturday and then to the Christian worship on Sunday before they made the full break from Judaism. So, again, you don't have all the details, my friend. You've been misled. So it says, use the Bible as your guide. Leave all other man-made rituals, traditions, and additions behind. You can't do that because the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. The church has the keys of authority. The church is the one led by the Holy Spirit to all truth. And I mentioned this in the last episode. I'll say it again. Jesus said to the leaders of his church, the apostles, I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear to hear it now. That is why I am sending the Holy Spirit who will guide you to all truth. And that's what we see in situations like abortion. When does a person become a person? The church has defined a person becomes a person at the moment of conception. God is present to give that person an eternal soul. From that moment on, it is against God's commandment to kill. You cannot kill that person. From the moment of conception, it is a person. It doesn't say that in the Bible. You won't find it there because it's not written in the Bible. Again, it's the church led by the Holy Spirit that has the authority to lead us to all truth. If you try to go to the Bible alone, you will end up in factions and all kinds of issues. If you look at the statistics, the last time I heard I think there's 40,000 different Christian denominations in the world today. That is because they're trying to read the Bible on their own, use the Bible as the supreme authority, and it can't be done. Showing us throughout history from the time this idea was invented in the 1500s, it just leads to faction after faction after faction after faction. You guys cannot find full agreement because it can't be done when you rely on yourself and the Bible alone. 
The Bible alone doesn't have everything we need. The church with the keys of authority is what Jesus gave us and guides us with. That is what Jesus established when he was here on earth. And then he gave the Holy Spirit to the church to lead us to all truth. So anyhow, the person concludes, says, while I likely disagree with many of the beliefs that you hold to, and I hope that you will be open in prayer to the Holy Spirit to hear what I'm saying, I beg you, start with prayerfully reading John chapter 6, verse 51 through 58. Again, please prayerfully read and pray with Jesus, asking him to speak to your heart as you read John 6, verse 51 through 58. That's the starting point because that is how you begin to embrace the New Testament, the New Covenant. All these other issues that you have with Catholicism will begin one by one to whittle, be whittled away because you will realize if I am to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ, I need to be Catholic because that's the church that has been preaching that and offering that and proclaiming that for all these centuries throughout Christianity. It is the Catholic church, my friend. And then one by one, all the others will dwindle. You will come to realize that you do not have the authority to interpret the Bible on your own. If you did, and every other Christian did, then we would all be right on the same page already. But we're not because people have been relying on themselves. And, oh, I could just go on and on and on, but I'm looking at my time. I'm already, I'm already at 52 minutes, and I haven't even gotten to so many others. Ah, oh, what a shame. So the person says, uh, can we find common ground in this? Jesus Christ, God's only son, came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived the perfect life that I could not live, died a death that I could never die, to pay the ultimate price for my sins and everyone's sins as payment so that I, we, can have eternal life and live forever in heaven with God, the creator of the universe. Yes, I can agree with that, but where the problem is for you is how does God make that possible? And if you re-listen re to or reread the words you have right there, Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sins as payment so that we could have eternal life. What did he say in John 6? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. What did he say at the New Testament meal, the New Covenant meal? We call it the Last Supper. He says, take this and eat. This is my body. Then he says, take this cup. This is my blood of the New Covenant that will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. My friends, the way that we are saved is through the sacraments in the Catholic Church. First, through baptism, we are baptized and all sin is washed away. This prepares the soul for this moment of receiving Jesus in the Eucharist. And if you are a non-Catholic in some other denomination that practices communion, unless you're in the Orthodox Church, you probably don't have like the actual body of Jesus. You have, see, when the Protestant Reformation happened, they broke away from the church. Uh, Martin Luther was excommunicated, which suspends his priestly, his priestly ordination, which means he can't celebrate Mass anymore, and that's to protect the faithful. But he also was only a priest. Only a bishop 
a successor of an apostle can ordain a priest or a bishop. So holy orders is necessary to consecrate the bread into the body of Jesus. So if you are in a Baptist church, a Methodist church, or some other denomination, and you practice communion, you're eating bread. If you are a Catholic or an Orthodox, you are receiving the body of God. Now, if you reflect back to when you were three years old, whoever you are listening right now, you are a lot bigger than you were when you were three years old. The way you got bigger was you ate food, and the food you ate physically became part of your own flesh and body, your body. What happens if you eat the body of Jesus and you drink the blood of Jesus? That means the body and blood of Jesus literally become part of your own body and blood. Those of you who are looking at me right now, before I started recording this, I was at Mass and I received the body of Jesus. You are looking at someone who is utterly, completely, 100% united spiritually and physically with the body of Jesus Christ. His body is literally in my body and my body literally in his. And so um, that is how Jesus saves us. It's through his grace given to us in these sacraments. Please read my book, Become a Better Archer and Use It to Avoid Sinning because it really spells this out even more in detail. And I'm actually going to leave you today with the words of Jesus, and that's going to end our podcast. I didn't even get to a fraction of the questions that I've been given, so we're going to have to have another Q&A soon. Next week is going to be, i got to have a Catholic priest here. We're going to talk about holy orders. We're going to talk about confession to a priest. It's in the Bible. We're going to talk about that and all that, but I'm going to leave you with the words of Jesus. And if you have any questions, please email me so that we can, I can address them in a podcast. So the words of Jesus to you and me are this, my friends, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This, my friends, is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ the Lord. And I beg you, go pray with this passage because this is 
the starting point that will help you embrace the fullness of truth and one day be able to receive the body of Jesus just as I have today. And more than anything else, I want that for you because Christ wants that for you. He died so that he could give you that in the Eucharist. And I beg you to give him the time to speak to you by prayerfully reading John chapter 6, 51 through 58. And if you have any questions, please email me through one of my websites, catholicguestspeaker.com, seansoutdooradventures.com, newcatholicevangelization.org. Anyone, email me and we can address it. I'd love to accompany you into the fullness of truth, into the Catholic Church. Until next time, take care and God bless.